Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Have you ever walked into a place and felt a presence of evil? Um, I want to tell you about a time I walked into a place and actually felt... um, the the residual evil, uh, the residual darkness of an event that happened there. People talk about this feeling when they go to places like Auschwitz in Germany and in West Virginia. There's the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which is now a tourist destination, not for me, thanks, but for other people. And they report feeling the same thing because sometimes a place can hold in it uh, the darkness, it can represent the darkness of the thing that happened there, that, that this geographic location opens behind the door to see the world as it really is, as a place where darker forces are at work. And I felt this feeling really once in my life, and it was um, outside of St. Louis in the year 2015. Um, I was in St. Louis for a work conference, and while I was there, I met my uh, a friend of mine, and uh, we grabbed a pizza and had a beer, and we were talking about, you know, St. Louis. And I said to him, hey, listen, would you mind taking me to a place nearby that I, I kind of want to go see? I'm, I'm curious to see. He said, sure. And I said, well, um, how far away are we from the suburb of, of Ferguson, Missouri? And he said, oh, I know where you want to go, and I, I can take you there. And I, I wanted to go see the place where Michael Brown had been shot. Do you remember the, the Michael Brown shooting from 2014? Um, Michael Brown was a black 18-year-old high school graduate, and uh, eyewitness accounts here don't amount to much, but as best as we can make out of it, this teenager, 18-year-old, about to start air conditioning repair school, got into a scuffle with a police officer named Darian Wilson, and uh, the police officer shot Brown in self-defense, and um, we're still not 100% sure we're able to piece together everything that happened, but we can say that a number of grand juries and investigators reviewed the matter and declared that the police officer was justified in using force in his self-defense. But for those who knew Michael Brown and those in the community who knew the police, um, they they weren't satisfied with that. Um, and, and so the, the death of Michael Brown uh, being shot by a police officer spent it sparked weeks and, and months, really, of protests and riots and mob violence in this Missouri suburb, which really could have been a suburb of any community. I can tell you that because I, I went there. And this is one of the first social media age deaths of a black man that sparked protest. We have them more often than I would like, to be honest with you. And um, and the reality is, I think, that, that more than anybody would like. But uh, for weeks, you'll remember the city of Ferguson was filled with peaceful protests by day and violent rioting at night. And you had images of police and military vehicles shooting tear gas. And there was hands up, don't shoot. That was the slogan of this particular protest. And you're talking, you know, riot gear and rubber bullets and beanbag shotguns and water cannons 
and looted shops and crying families and candlelight vigils. I mean, it really was, it was all there. And so as my friend pulled uh, into the street where Michael Brown was shot, the, the weight of the internationally significant uh, series of events began to, to, to make itself known to us that this neighborhood was the site of a very dark event that symbolized dark things about the world around us, and our hearts began to race as we were there. And we didn't want to draw attention to ourselves, not because it was a black neighborhood. It, really, it wasn't just a black neighborhood. And um, we, we just felt like intruders into this place of sacred pain for the St. Louis community. And so as we pulled up, we saw that there was an impromptu memorial that someone had placed on the nearby sidewalk. They had taken out a chunk of the sidewalk and refilled in the cement, but they had drawn in the cement a maybe one foot long outline of Michael Brown's chalk outline from where he had laid on the ground after he was shot. And so we pulled into a nearby parking lot and uh, my friend and I didn't know what to do because we were so overwhelmed by the sort of significance of where we were um, visiting at the time. We didn't even get out of the car, but we both decided it was important to say prayers at this point. And so we, we say, said prayers over this neighborhood in this space, which had been violated by um, a real tragedy. And then we drove off after a couple of minutes and, and left. Conflicts over matters of race have been a part of the human condition since the very beginning. Um, the, that uh, ever since the beginning of time, we've been able to talk about matters of race and use them to divide ourselves uh, between those who are good and those who are bad, right? We, we can do that. That's one of the ways sin manifests itself is by saying, I can choose who's good and bad by looking at their skin or their ethnicity or their nationality or their language. And we're not immune to this in America, right? We have the Ku Klux Klan. We had slavery. We had a history of segregation and, and Jim Crow laws. We have our history with Native Americans. And most of us in the 21st century, we're all in agreement that racism is bad. Um, but there continues to be a conversation of how might we rid our society of racism when it was such a, a, a prevailing part of our life uh, together over the past you know, um, 250 years or so. And sadly, I think those on the forefront of this conversation, right now anyway, they tend not to be believers in Jesus. It's a conversation that Christians aren't really having, and the Christian voices that are trying to have that conversation aren't really finding any support from the Christians or the, the folks in the secular community either. So today what I want to do is to help us uh, understand a biblical theology of race. I want to do a quick walkthrough of the Bible's convictions on matters of race and maybe understand how we might sympathize with, but also set ourselves apart from the current conversations happening today on matters of race. And, and, and more than that, I think I want to tell you that just because we're a church that's mostly white in, in its uh, structure, that doesn't mean that the theology behind it is something that is going to hold us back. It's not something that's going to um, be irrelevant to us. In fact, I think the theology of race has something to say for every single person sitting in this room right here, right now, about the love of God and the proclamation of the gospel. And so I want to talk about that as well. 
And so matters of race, I just want to tell you, they're, they're, these are matters that God is not only concerned with in the Bible, but they're matters that Jesus had in his heart and mind to address in his death and resurrection. And so to start our conversation, I want you to look at our reading today from Chronicles uh, 16, first book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16 in, in your bulletins. And um, it's not a mistake if you thought we had accidentally put a psalm in there, you know. Uh, if, you, if you thought we'd accidentally put a psalm in there, um, you'd be mistaken, right? Uh, but instead, uh, we have in our reading today, First uh, Chronicles 16, a song that King David indeed composes, composed. And it's a song that comes from a celebration and a holiday. It's the day where they bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the temple. Uh, excuse me, they don't have the temple yet. They bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. David has fortified Jerusalem, made it a, a city of kings, and, and he's bringing the Ark, the symbol of the religious history of Israel, but also the symbol of God's faithfulness to the people. He's bringing it into the city, and it, it's cause for a big party, massive party. Slaughtered all the cows, had a bunch of food. In fact, the text says everyone in Israel got um, a party gift, a parting gift. They got meat, they got bread, and they got raisin cakes, which was a big deal, right? You, you, you got cake in the ancient world, and not everybody got, got a sweet cake, a dessert like that all the time. And part of this whole event was a big parade and a ceremony as the, the ark was led into the city, and David wrote a song about it and instructed the priests to sing this song while it was being brought in. And so here's a part of it. I'll read it to you from our reading today. Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And I think there are two things we can discern from this text, this portion of our reading, which is first, every nation, ethnicity, people, race, right? That's the language. When the Bible talks about the peoples and the nations, it's the same thing we're talking about now. Every ethnicity, people, uh, race, they all have idols that are worthless in some degree. Um, that's one of the themes of our reading. And in the ancient world, it was often the claim from Israel that they lofted towards other religions, that their idols, their statues, their fetishes, things that were made from wood and, and stone and gold, that those things were worthless. Why would you worship those things when you could worship the one God who created the stone and the wood and the gold? It's, there's a, a natural supersession of the God of Israel uh, who says, look, don't worship the thing that was made, worship the one who made it. And that's a hard thing to say in our culture nowadays, um, to put all other sort of races and cultures um, on an equal playing field by saying none of them are actually great. But that's the reality of the sinful world is that there is no culture or ethnicity or race that's completely lined up with God's will for the earth. And that's certainly true of Israel too, right? Uh, of the 21 kings who were going to follow King David in Israel, only three of them had any sort of actual faith in the God of Genesis. And so when David and his chorus they sing together, right, all the gods of the peoples of the earth are worthless idols. He's saying that there's something of deep and eternal worth missing from every culture in the world, including our own, you should take note. Um, that nobody has a sort of fully fleshed out, fully redeemed culture pegged. It's the first thing we can take from a reading. And here's the second thing, 
is that the people of Israel, part of their job is to bring this thing of deep and eternal worth um, to the other cultures who have things of temporal and um, worthlessness, right? They have idols. The people of Israel are not um, told to sort of keep their, to use Jesus's language, light under a basket. Um, they're told to say, hey, your idols are worthless, but here's the thing that is worth infinitely and eternally more than your worthless idol. And that is a relationship with the God who made the wood your idol is made out of. In other words, there's a God-shaped hole in every culture and people and tribe and ethno-linguistic group. And believers in that God, right, they, we don't have to keep them a secret, this God is for everybody. And sometimes we forget that there were a lot of God-fearers in the Bible. They, they hear Israel praising their wondrous God, and they say, hey, uh, I hear you've got a pretty good God down there. And Israel says, yeah, you should come check him out. He's really great. And they say, okay, I think we will. And, and, and so they come. Uh, you, you've got prostitutes and, and, and enemy generals and, and all sorts of people who come to worship the God of Israel, even though um, the, the, the God of Israel is the God of the whole world. And even though the culture they were born in says, you know, our gods are our stone and sticks and gold. One scholar called this sort of Old Testament evangelism, come and see evangelism. And it's something that Israel occasionally did very well. Um, there are plenty of stories of people who, who hear about this God through the grapevine and they come and check him out. And that's a real gift, right? Because what it says is, you know, we don't have to build a faith around a monoculture. Um, anybody can come and worship God in their own standing, in their own station. They don't have to shed their culture and to adopt another just to come to worship God. God doesn't need us at this point to all speak the same language, to sing the same songs, or to dance the same dance. You guys probably don't dance in church, but our Kenyan brothers and sisters are like, why aren't they dancing in church? And part of that is because there's a cultural element there of how we worship God in our own context. And God actually welcomes that. He doesn't reject that. He welcomes it because he wants everybody from every people and culture and, and language uh, to be in relationship with him. Well, Jesus comes along and, and he actually has the same idea for ministry, uh, the same idea of bringing in people from every people and language and culture, every race to come and worship him. But what he does is he switches the direction of God's plan. Because if, if the people of Israel were, were kind of a come and see people, uh, when Jesus uh, comes back from the dead, he tells his disciples to be a go and make kind of people, right? What does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. And so when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, right, there's no reason for people to go to Jerusalem to meet with God. So let's go out from Jerusalem and take God to those people. And that's the story of the New Testament, uh, that the, the original apostles go to the ends of the earth, places like Rome and Egypt and, and Ethiopia and India and they carry with them the God of, of the scriptures to all of these different varied cultures and peoples and circumstances. And um, we'll speak more to that later, but that's the story of the New Testament. And that doesn't mean that that's easy because what you find is a lot of tension happens in the church with people trying to get together and worship God, even though they come from different racial backgrounds. Right? This is Acts chapter 6 in our reading today. Right, It's the first ever church conflict and it breaks out over matters of race. The church in Acts 6 is growing fast. 
It's a multi-ethnic body composed of people who are originally Jewish, but also with people from all over the world. And so this is a big church, right? Uh, thousands of people. And as many big churches do today, they put together an elder care ministry. They're going to take care of the widows, um, people whose husbands have died and they can't work for themselves and don't have Social Security because there is no Social Security back then. And so the team assembled to deal with this group begins to distribute bread and make sure the widows are doing okay on a, on a regular basis. But there's a problem because as our text says, um, there are some of those widows who are getting discriminated against because of their ethnicity, right? The, 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 the Hebrew widows are getting the bread, but the Hellenist widows, the people who are not Jewish in their ethnic origin, they're not getting the bread. It's not an exaggeration to say that the first sort of inner church problem that is experienced, the first inner church conflict, right? Not outsiders pretending to be Christians, not religious persecution, but the first conflict among believers to happen in the church has at its core a strong racial component, one that the original apostles wanted to see cleared up as soon as possible. They said, listen, we can't stop what we're doing, but we need to deal with this now because it's improper to the gospel and it's going to tear the church apart. So they, they assign a number of people to take over that ministry, uh, people we would eventually call deacons. And so when the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 7, a famous passage that I didn't include in your bulletin today, St. John has a vision from where every tribe and race, they're all going to be wearing white robes and they're all going to be standing in God's throne room and they're all going to be praising him. White people, black people, Hispanic people, Pacific Islanders, Asians, Scandinavians, Inuits, Arabs, Uyghurs, Chinese, Japanese, white South Africans, every one of them will be among the final redeemed at the end of time. I just recently learned that in the history of recorded history, uh, there were 11 babies born on the continent of Antarctica, or in the continent of Antarctica. And it's, it's a good bet that a sample of the Antarcticans will be among God's people as well, right? That's, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, that, that people are going to be in the throne room of heaven from everywhere. We might as well get used to it. And this is in stark contrast with a world that continues to erupt in racial violence, in God's kingdom, there will be Hutu and Tutsi, right? That's the clans who, who were at war during the Rwandan genocide. And then there's, in God's kingdom, there's going to be Uyghurs and, and Yazidi. And those were groups that were targeted by genocide for, for the, by the Chinese government and the Islamic State. But some of those folks from the Chinese government and some of them from the Islamic State, uh, they may have religious conversions and end up in the throne room of heaven too. And the, the church has not been on the forefront of doing this well. Um, I won't rehash all the failures of, of matters of race in the church right here, but I did learn a new one recently that I'll share with you, which is that the Episcopal Church, our, our kind of spiritual ancestors here, they, they printed Bibles uh, for the antebellum slaves that conveniently left out any references to freedom or slavery or dignity for slaves. So they left out stories like Moses and the Exodus, and they left out stories like Paul's epistle to Philemon. And so I, I don't have to tell you that these matters of race have dominated our past. I think you know it and I know it both. And honestly, I think it's ultimately good that in 2021, we're paying attention to, to, to matters of race and ethnicity in a way that the Bible does. And so if I had to sum up the Bible's understanding, it would be something like this. 
every human being is made in God's image and is capable of being in relationship with him. And there is something in every culture um, that that can connect us to God. There are ways in which every culture in the world reflects um, God's goodness and his grace in some capacity. But there are ways in which every culture in the world departs from God's will in one significant way at least. Because if there were a perfect culture with perfect people and a perfect race, we wouldn't need Jesus. So there is no culture that's without sin or without need of repentance. But the gospel of Jesus, what it will do at the end of time, is create a new culture. Not one based on race, but one based on grace. And this is new culture will one day be perfect and without sin uh, or any sort of need of repentance. And that's what we are promised. Now, I want to speak a little bit about today's conversation about race in the public square. Um, I, I don't think um, it's it's without its issues. There are a lot of issues with our current conversations about race because some of it has to do with American history, which I'm not qualified to comment upon in the pulpit with any expertise. But some of it has to do with politics, which has gotten so nasty that there's no room for nuance. Um, but I think I can share two quick implications from our readings today about our public conversations about grace before we close. And the first is this. I think we do wrong when we try to ignore that people of different races receive different treatment because of their race. That's sort of the core of racism is treating people differently because of their race. And um, I'll simply share that I have yet to make a friend with a person of color who hasn't quietly admitted to me how matters of race have negatively impacted their life. I was at a Christian conference that I spoke at last May. One of the speakers shared how he was a young black man and he was pulled over as a young black man uh, 21 times by police officers in his neighborhood. And five of those times he was pulled out of his car and put into handcuffs. Now, how many tickets and citations did he receive as a result of that? Uh, none. <laughs> he had done nothing wrong. And yet that was his experience. And I was at an event hosted by a former employer at West Virginia University, and I was talking with a young man about his experience on campus with matters of race, and he confided in me that he had stopped going into some small businesses in a certain area of town because he noticed that shopkeepers would follow him around the store as he browsed, thinking that he was a thief. And so he stopped going, this young black man would. And at my mostly white undergraduate university, one of our few black students, he confided in me how he was transferring out at the end of the year. Because one of the Greek groups on campus made a lighthearted joke about race at a school-sponsored event. And it was a joke that glossed over how difficult it was to be one black student in a sea of white Christians. So he was already singled enough as a black man on campus, but now his experience was the subject of laughter. So like, who, who could blame him, right? I just, I haven't met a person of color who hasn't quietly confessed to me how matters of race have negatively impacted their life. And most of them are Christians who love Jesus and believe he rose from the dead. So I'm not trying to say that we're perfect, right? America is this great melting pot experiment unlike anything else done in the history of the world. We're trying to build a diverse community. It's not an easy thing. So let's not be naive and think we've got this sort of racism-free culture thing figured out yet. I don't think we do. But there's a flip side to this too, which is to say that racism is an injustice that's so pervasive and so negative and so so terrible that it cannot be forgiven and amends cannot be made. And this is often a secular argument that pushes in the opposite vein, right? Some say racism is gone and it's over and everything's fine now. 
But others say that racism is so ingrained in our culture that it cannot be excised or toned for. It cannot be redeemed. It cannot be um, sort of uh, in any way ameliorated. It's just that pervasive. And you'll hear some people suggest that the culpability for a racist society falls on those in the dominant race. And there's this sort of perpetual guilt for a dominant class that can never be truly atoned for or forgiven. I was in an HR meeting once at a secular setting, and I was told that I could be disciplined for work at work for making any person of color feel uncomfortable in the workplace with my speech or language. Right, The intent of our speech was irrelevant. Anything that was said, not just the slurs or the curse words, but anything that was said by anyone in the workplace that a person of color found offensive or discomforting could be cause for work discipline. And back when Beth and I had started uh, to work through some potential infertility matters, we had adoption on our minds. And I was told by someone that a white family adopting a black child was ultimately a matter of oppression and imperialism. We were not rescuing a child from a foster system. We were stealing a child from a family broken apart by white supremacy. Which is to say that we haven't figured out a way to navigate matters of race apart from the reality of divine grace. Even if most Americans segregate into these smaller monocultures on a Sunday morning in church, um, I do think we as Christians are better equipped to fight against real pervasive racism in the human heart um, than our secular counterparts. I think we're better prepared for it. My wife's parents, um, they attend a church in East Liberty. Um, it's called Eastminster Presbyterian. They do a really good job of this. They do a remarkably good job. They love Jesus in an orthodox way. They believe the Christian gospel just like we do. They're Presbyterians. They have a white pastor, but they have a black lead musician. And they have a praise band and a gospel choir and a regular church choir too. And their congregation, they said, we need to reflect the multi-ethnic neighborhood that we live in. And so they do. They, they have an active, multicultural congregation. It's been hard work to put together, but they've, they've done as good a job as I've seen anyone do. Uh, and, and so it's a beautiful snapshot of the kingdom of God to attend there on Sunday mornings because they really are creating something reflective of Revelation chapter 7. But given our own context and epiphany in Ligonier, these matters aren't forefront on our minds. They're just not the social concerns that, that matter the most of us because the valley is not as diverse as East Liberty. It, Liberty, it all seems kind of out there. But this is very important to us nonetheless because it's very important to your spiritual ancestry. Our lives would look very different today um, if somebody from the past had, had not preached the gospel in a cross-cultural, extra-racial context. Right? Without somebody preaching the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, his coming back to judge the, the, the living and the dead, and the repentance for our imperfections. If someone had not told that message across the boundaries of language and skin color and, friend, uh, and, 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 and uh, race... Um, friends, if someone hadn't believed in this cross-cultural love of Jesus, uh, friends, today we might still be worshiping trees. And I mean that sincerely, right? Because at some point in the past, a person with dark, dark skin told a person with lighter skin about Jesus' death and resurrection. We know this had to be true because Caucasian people weren't there when the empty tomb was discovered. And that person with the lighter skin told all of his friends about the good news given to him by a person with darker skin. Somewhere in your spiritual ancestry, the Christian gospel was preached across a racial and ethnic boundary. 
because of this cross-cultural mission moment, your family ancestors stopped worshipping Greek statues and pagan fertility gods and really, really big trees, and they begin to worship the actual creator god who made the stone and the gold and the wood that those idols were made out of. They ditched their household idols. They ditched their pagan charms. They, they, they ditched their fetishes made out of animal bones. And instead, they all agreed um, to take on and, and venerate, not worship, but venerate, a T-shaped Roman execution device that their savior was crucified on. You are sitting here today because a Middle East person some time ago believed that someone like you different in so many ways from him or her, so far from God that they worshiped the wood and the stone and the gold that God himself had made. They believe someone like you was capable of being in relationship with God, and they loved you enough, despite all your differences, to share with you a cosmic truth that transcended the color of anybody's skin. So let's not be mistaken here, friends. If it weren't for the transracial love of God to sinners, your life would be a lot different. You might be dancing around a maypole at a pagan solstice festival. You might be tying your prayers to a tree branch. You might be kneeling in front of a statue on Sunday mornings. Somebody had to have, in the past, taken the love of God so seriously that they preached the good news uh, to someone radically racially different than themselves for you to be here today. So let us uh, be thankful then, friends. Um, let us do the uh, go and make work um, that God has asked us to do to every race and tribe and people that God would have us to go to. Let's be grateful for those international missionaries who do that work in a tangible way. Because if the love of God transcends race and culture and ethnicity and language, it just might be available to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in grief, broke with the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.